from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Ramona Rehani on February 25, 2017. Ramona is the co-founder of Townsend International School in the Czech Republic and is the author of Simply Noble, a step-by-step guide to cultivating the best in your child. We talk about the genesis of Townsend International School and about her book. I started the interview by asking Ramona where she grew up, and what was it like growing up there? Okay, that's going to be very complicated. <laughs> <laughs> I was born in Iran, in Tehran. We lived there for four years. Then we went to England for three years. Then we came back to Iran for two years. Then we went to the United States for two years. Then we came back to Iran. I went through my high school years in Tehran, in an American international school there. It was very multicultural. The cultures were amazingly diverse, from Iranian to British and British to American. There were three different worlds at that time. It was beautiful. You come into contact so much that is different from your own culture. As a child, you don't notice it. You just think, well, this is the way life has to be. But as you grow up, you realize how much you have gained from that experience, how much life is easier for you to meet strangers come into contact with them and socialize with them and to appreciate the difference. For me, it's still one of the joys of life when I see an aspect of somebody's culture that is totally foreign to me. I think that's the most exciting thing, uh, to ask them what this was and what it's about and how it is. That was my growing up Mm -hmm. in Iran. Why was it that you moved about so much when you were growing up? My father was a doctor, and he got uh, scholarships to study in the United Kingdom and then in the United States. I would call him a student until I was about 11 years old when we returned to Iran to stay there. What was religious life growing up? It's funny that you use the word religious because for me it's more the spiritual life. We were Baha'is, a minority in Iran. You would think of religion, but it's actually, in everyday life, it's more the spiritual things that you learn. And I think I was very lucky in my family. It was a blessing of the love, the tolerance, the patience, the inclusiveness that you had there, the generosity of spirit, the things that you get to learn from your parents and their everyday actions. And, of course, as a Baha'i child, all Baha'i children in Iran went to Baha'i children's classes. That was the religious part of it, maybe, where you're learning and memorizing and studying the history of your faith. But in the everyday life, I'd heard many times Iranians of other religions turn around and say to Baha'is, you're a bit different, aren't you? Because they admired the inclusiveness and the openness and the kindness. This is what I experienced growing up. I really appreciate that. It's something that 
has always set a measure for myself of what would my father do or what would my mother do? I, even my grandmother. My grandmother was a very strong woman in Iran's times, those days and everything. So anytime in life when I come up with something that caused anxiety, I would stop and immediately think of her. Of course, our family went through the revolution that took place in Iran and Many things happened to all Baha'is there. I was out of Iran at that time. I was married and living in Europe. But my grandmother suffered much. They confiscated her home a number of times, moved her around, took everything, gave it back, took it away again. And she was amazingly strong. She was amazingly courageous, and I love her for that. And my father, we lost my father when he was the member of the National Spiritual Assembly of Iran, of the Baha'is of Iran, and that assembly was kidnapped. It's very amazing when people ask, well, how do you feel about that? Because you feel so proud that your father was so strong. I always think, God, please don't test me because I don't have that strength of character that my father had, but it's a standard that he sets, and you're just proud that he would much rather give his life than live a life of untruthfulness or fear. That's what the role that religion has played in our lives here, myself, my husband, my daughter. It's something that plays a very strong role in our everyday lives, where every moment that you say something or do something, you turn around and you ask yourself, Oh, was that okay? Or <laughs> was I not very kind there? One of the things I've learned through my mother is that, and this also comes from the Baha'i writings, that every evening, she says, every evening when I sit down, I think of everything I've done that day and what could have been a mistake and what was good. And then I can sleep. It's a lesson. When you see that in your mother or in your father, it's a lesson that remains with you. And even if you... Don't do it exactly that way. It becomes a part of you. Regarding your father and being on the National Spiritual Assembly of the Baha'is for Iran, and you said that that National Spiritual Assembly, which is an elected council, was kidnapped. Do you mean by the authorities? Yes. This was in August 1980. The revolution had taken place about a year and a half before that. The Baha'is had become a target of one of the groups that was involved in the revolution, and they were the more fundamental and fanatical. Our home had been, let's say, visited by revolution guards a number of times, things taken away like albums to find pictures that might be incriminating or having anything to do with the old regime, and all the Baha'i books had been taken. Actually, one time that they had come to find my father and he wasn't there, they actually took my mother prisoner. They beat her up with rifle butts until she fainted. Then she was taken away. And she was actually the first Baha'i woman in Tehran to be taken. Thank God it only was 17 days. And of course, discomforts and unkindness and interrogations, but... She was saved the fate of those who came after her who, who were tortured and killed. So we were very lucky to get her back. 
Is it true that a second national spiritual assembly was created after the first one was taken away by the authorities and then that one too was taken away? Yes. In, in the case of the second national assembly, it was very clear that they were executed. And probably in the case of the first one too, but that is not common knowledge or confirmed knowledge. But the second one was, they were all executed. So you never saw your father again after the assembly was kidnapped? No, no. The last time I actually saw him was when I was, um, the last visit I was there in August, September 79. And we had no idea. We knew there were things happening. We knew that there were accusations against the Baha'is, but nothing had really started then at that time. And we had a very wonderful time together. But I guess you don't say goodbye. Well, actually, you say goodbye differently if you know you're not going to see somebody again. Right, it's like, see you later. Yeah, yeah, right. exactly. So what about your mom? After about a year after my father had disappeared, the friends and people who were in touch with the authorities advised her to leave the country and that it was getting a bit dangerous for her. And so she just left everything and she became a refugee. She became a refugee in Germany. She came, I think about 34, 35 years ago, she came to Germany and made her home here. She became a German citizen. So we're all of different nationalities. My father remained an Iranian citizen. <laughs> I have Austrian citizenship. My brother has Canadian citizenship. And my mother's a German. <laughs> so after you finished high school, you went to university? I went to university for a year and lived with relatives in California. When they moved back, I was too far away from my parents and too young. So they asked me to stay in Iran in the summer. And then I started university there. And after one year, I met my husband who had come for a visit from Germany and we got married. That stopped there. Then uh, it just went on like that. And university in Austria, we moved a number of times and I had to change my subject. So for example, in the US, I was studying commercial art which was not available any, anywhere else. In Iran, I took translation. In, in Germany, I tried with psychology, but I hadn't learned enough German at the time. And then I went in for a subject that's called Anglistics and Americanistics. That's the German description of it. So it's both like grammar and literature and everything in English. And then at some time, I realized that I wasn't giving enough time to my family and my daughter especially. And I just stopped it there. You co-founded the Townsend International School. Can you explain for us what were the circumstances that you ended up co-founding a school? <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't that worry you? <laughs> <laughs> I find it very interesting. I always think that a decision that is made is not something that's of the moment. It has a history to it. When we were living in Austria, we lived in a small village outside of Salzburg. And you have to imagine this is like 27 years ago. There were very few foreigners living where we were. In the village that we lived, I think we were the only ones. Our daughter 
she was never bullied, but she would come home with stories of, Mom, somebody's grandmother asked me what my God was and what he looked like. Doesn't she know we don't know what God looks like? And so she would hear these things also from the children. And it made me very sad because sometimes she couldn't understand it and it hurt her feelings. And then we sit down and I'd explain to her what they really meant. We went through a lot of that. So when we decided to move to Prague, we signed her up in the international school there. And it was just beautiful. The first day that I opened the door for her to let her into the building, there were four Nigerian children standing there. And, I, and my first reaction was, look, look, they're even darker than you are. And we went through two wonderful years. I must say that American education has a lot of encouragement and joy in it and a lot of love from the teachers. Our daughter just bloomed. I was happy. I was helping at the school. I was working with one of the teachers there. She was happy, and our lives were totally just full of joy. But then a time came when we had to leave Prague, which is the capital of, at that time, it was Czechoslovakia. It wasn't the Czech Republic yet. And we had to leave Prague, but we wanted to stay in the country, and there were no possibilities of international schools outside of Prague. But the school at that time was so small. You have to imagine it was the school in Prague belonged to the times of the communists. And so only diplomats were foreigners in the country. And only diplomat children were in the school. And it was a very small school. And that fooled us because we thought, oh, God, if they can do it, we can do it too. Mm-hmm. So we moved closer to the Austrian border. And to allow our daughter to enjoy the same kind of education and the same kind of atmosphere that she had at the international school in Prague, we started Townsend in South Bohemia. And it was really amazing because a number of people, a number of our our friends living in Austria and Germany, when we talked to them about that, they wanted something different for their children too. You have to imagine that the European continent, the people are very safe in their lives because of socialism and everything is regulated. So you have to have a lot of courage to say, I'm going to take my child out of the system and put him into a different system. And it was beautiful. And it was very small at the beginning, but the children just came and we got also children from the Czech Republic. It became the Czech Republic at that time. There were families who were very interested in anything foreign, so they brought their children. And then by and by, the school grew. Foreign children would go back home, and their neighbors would be so impressed by, oh, my God, he's so different, she's grown up. And they started sending their children. We call it a Baha'i-inspired school. It was very interesting for us that many people were so happy with having a Baha'i-inspired school that they would send their children to a country that some of them had never seen in their lives and was very strange for them. It was interesting to see how attracted they were by everything that the school had to offer their children themselves. How many teachers and students were there the first year? And then how many teachers and students do you have today? I think we started with something like 25 children and maybe four or five teachers and dorm parents. And then they were young Baha'is doing year of service. 
and they came from an, another Baha'i inspired school from Canada. They had finished their education there and they came to do a year of service and they helped us out. Now we're still a very small school because we're not in the capital. We have approximately 140 students and staff, including teachers and everybody, would be about 50 or 60 staff. Why did you name the school Townsend, Townsend International School? George Townsend was a very prominent Baha'i and very much admired a humanitarian. I think one of his dreams was to have a school at some time. He was an Irishman known to the Baha'i world for his mind, his thoughts, his philosophy, his writings, his poetry. We're sitting together with friends and we're thinking of a name that would somehow fit to a school, <laughs> and a Baha'i-inspired school. Somebody made that suggestion and we all just fell for it. We just said, yes, this is the person that we would like to have on our side. <laughs> <laughs> now, you said it's a Baha'i-inspired school. So what does that mean? A Baha'i-inspired school is not affiliated to the institutions of the Baha'i faith. From the writings that we have, we let them guide us in our decision-making. For example, one of the things in the Baha'i faith is consultation. Consultation is a very important aspect of the faith. And so we have this in the school that we have a flat hierarchy. This is the management team, and it meets once a week for consultation. Then I'm responsible for the residential program. I meet with the dormitory staff once a week. The academic director meets with all the teaching staff once a week. Anything at our dormitories, for example, they take care of all the holistic aspects of a child's growth. So one of the most important things that they do that they constantly consult. They consult with the seniors, they consult with the juniors. They have meetings, if not once a week, at least once every second week where they come together and they discuss the situation of the dorms, how it's running, what needs there are. So. This is one aspect of being a Baha'i-inspired school, that we're using this tool of consultation very strongly in our everyday lives and in strategy building, in social structure building, everything that we do. We take guidance from the writings of the Baha'i faith. In 2005, you published a book called Simply Noble, Yes. So you went from mother to co-founder of an international school to an author. So what inspired you to write this book, Simply Noble? Well, as a residential director for many years, I've been working with parents. It was brought to my attention very soon that many parents did not know anymore how to bring up a child. For example, the Central European countries, most of the people have become little families, families of three, families maybe of four. They're separated from their relatives. There's no grandmother to guide them. There's no aunt or uncle there to support them. They're all alone. We have reached the generation that has been brought up as latchkey generation. So they were not 
in the position to experience a family life where the mother would stay at home, take care of the child, be there when the child came back. They do not have that. And many of them were not able to pass on to their children what usually a mother would pass on. I looked at my mother, I looked at my grandmother, and I would pass on to my daughter those things that I thought were worthy of keeping in the family or developing in my child. This was practically lost. And then also Europe went from a condition where the state, the church, and the schools, and the families were all working together. From that, they just separated. The state just made the schools and was not showing responsibility. The schools would say, well, you take care of your children, you teach them etiquette, you teach them politeness. The churches had divided and each one was saying something else. And the family was left with no guidance, practically no guidance. But the most who suffered were the young women and young mothers. They had absolutely no skills. Suddenly, a generation had uh, come about where young girls were getting pregnant out of marriage. And they had no one to help them, no one to support them. They had no idea what family life is, what marriage is, what a parent should be doing for their children. And I see that very often, that there's a lot of suffering there. And also another thing that happened in Central Europe especially was that after the Second World War and all the authoritarianism that had brought about the Second World War, many Germans and Austrians did not want to be authoritarian with their children. So they just became anti-authoritarian. It's like, why do you have to swing all the way into the other direction? I would talk with mothers who were afraid to say no to their children. They had anxieties to insist on something for their children. Some of them could not cope with their 14-year-old son. They would bring them to us. We would talk. They would leave the son there in the, in the residential program. But then they would contact me and say, please allow him to smoke or please allow him to do this or that because they were so worried that the son would run away. So for years, I was talking to parents who had all these kinds of anxieties. They had all these problems, a lack of information. And when you've had your child, it's too late to sit down and read books because you're changing diapers <laughs> and you're trying to make its food and you don't know how to clean up the house or do this and that. And it's practically too late. If your child has been born out of wedlock, you don't even have the possibility of sitting together with the father and discussing the development of your child and what you want to do for it and how you want to live together. And all of that is lost. Mm. Now, I'm not saying that this is 100% the situation of Europe, but what I am saying is that a huge change has taken place that has taken away the support of young families and young mothers. And when I was talking to these parents and seeing what the problems is, I just had this desire or I don't know what to call it, but I just wanted to share my thoughts with those people who might need this information. Some of it, I, if you've read the book, it's very simple information, but there's a lot there.
So what would the reader find when they open up the book? They will find that an author with no patience at all for psychology and explaining things for hours and hours has sat down and put every single point mm -hmm. that they will need to think of when raising a child. Now, this can be the cleanliness of the room to the hours of sleep to quality time with their child. It's just point after point. My motive was not that they memorize all of this, but that you just tell them, well, this is also important. You know, you know just keep this in mind or keep that in mind. I remember that I was married two years before I realized that the switches, the light switch in the room has to be cleaned. I'd never <laughs> cleaned a light switch and I'd actually never observed anybody in the family cleaning it. I don't know how it got cleaned. So there are many things that a young girl will go into either a, a relationship, a marriage, or just have a child who has no idea about simple things, simple things that will simplify her life, that will make it easier for her to deal with her child. And also in preparing for that child growing into puberty and after that. So it's lots of lots of unimportant little things that when they come together, uh, they make a big important thing. Now you called the book Simply Noble. Why was that? I think it's the word nobility that meant so much to me. As a Baha'i child and a Baha'i youth later and then an adult, one of the things that I loved very much in Baha'i writings was that we are told that the human being is a noble being. This impressed me very much because it's guidance to in which direction you should be growing yourself personally, not just others, what changes you should bring in your life, how you should react to things, how you should work with other people. And my husband and I were just throwing titles at each other and then this one came up and we both loved it very much, so we hung on to it. Yeah, it actually reminds me of one of the passages that Baha'u'llah writes, says, noble have I created thee, speaking as God would speak. Yeah. When I said, how was it that a mom could then go and co-found a school? I was thinking, you know, probably a mom is probably the most qualified because <laughs> <laughs> normally they're the ones that primarily raising the kids typically. The truth <laughs> is that we have many sources in society around it. Wonderful people who've become teachers and they've become teachers because of their love of teaching youth. And we had all these resources, and that's the most important thing. My husband and I didn't do anything special. We're just crazy enough to start the school. But from day one, we had people supporting and helping and coming and teaching and working in the school. It's an ongoing process of surprise for me every time I sit back and I look at the people who are working there or think about the people in the past. And I think we were so blessed. We were so blessed. Just the opportunity of having gotten to know these people. You think you're doing something special with a project, but it's amazing how much you learn yourself because every day is an opportunity for us to learn lessons. When you're together with these wonderful people who are full of heart and courage and generosity and sacrifice, so much sacrifice, it helps you to keep your commitments. It helps you to get up every morning and 
go back to work because you know you're going to be supported by these people and that you're working together. It's a very amazing experience. I remember one father who had brought his son here was visiting us at home once and, you know, he turned to me and he said, you know, you're a very selfish person. You've just created a wonderful community for yourself to enjoy yourself. That's it. And, and it was very sweet what he said. And when he said that, I thought about it. I said, yes, it's really wonderful because I've just created a community around myself, which is the kind of community in which you want to work, where you're not pushed by materialism. You're not pushed by that rat race. You're all working together for something good. And it's your life. We have a beautiful campus that was a miracle just getting it. I would actually wish for many youth to have this opportunity to live a life like this, even if it's just for a few months or for a year. It's an amazing experience for the youth. They never say much kind words to us while they're here, but on the day that they graduate and it's all over and they know, you know, now they have to go, then they turn around and the words of thanks and gratitude is so heartwarming. And I would wish that for youth. They have a very hard time in this world. We've destroyed everything in this world and we expect them to save it now. And I wish for them that they would have this opportunity, not only towns, and there are many such schools around the world. I think I would wish that for the youth. Well, Ramona, thank you so much for sharing your work with us. Thank you for wanting to hear about it. <laughs> I was remiss in asking Ramona to read an excerpt from her book, Simply Noble, A Step-by-Step -Step Guide to Cultivating the Best in Your Child. She sent me a beautiful tribute to her daughter as a result. Here is Ramona's reading. This book started out with my daughter, and so I will end it by sharing with you what I have shared with her. What I want for you is to be able to laugh when you are crying, to show enthusiasm when you have been frustrated, to be just when you have been treated unfairly, to be trustworthy when you have been cheated, to be loyal when you have been betrayed, to be truthful when you have been lied to, to be polite when you have been insulted, to be humble when you are winning. To show courage when you are scared. To show serenity when all are panicking. To remain objective when the fight is at its hottest. To keep your dignity when the world is in chaos. To see the butterflies when your dreams are crumbling to enjoy the little things of life when you cannot have the big things, and to try again when you think you have failed. What I want for you is to be noble. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Ramona Rehani, co-founder of Townsend International School in the Czech Republic and author of the book Simply Noble, a step-by-step -step guide to cultivating the best in your child. You can find this interview and other interviews at abahaiperspective.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective.
For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. Father bound in chains Exiled to foreign lands Never to see his home again The bond of love between them one can't explain A bond forged through love and pain Like drawn to a flame Loyal moth guards his name, guards his name. Though he suffered many hardships, this mighty branch stood. Loyal and firm The bond between them Was never broken Words of love need Not be spoken Like drawn to a flame This loyal moth Guards his name Guards his
disloyal mob guards his name, guards his name, not drawn to a flame. His name, God's His name, God's His name, God's His.
And I pray for the world to break away from hate and arrogance. Science is advanced, but the soul is old carriages. Lost in the music till I found a glimpse of the spiritual map like a round of fists. Now I hear the voice and I love the sound of it. You see, the promised one has come, we're all surrounded by his countenance. Searching through this earth for a truth that was concealed. I found it in the words that Baha'u'llah revealed. I've walked on so many different paths and been to so many different places. I've learned so many different lessons, but seen so many similar faces. But it all fades to blackness when I fail to get the practice that I need to be the spiritual being you've seen in me since back when I was walking all alone. Talking like I built this home when it was the carpenter who made it all alone. Praise God, I need to redefine my life. I'm living so raw, cause the flame of separation. Has consumed my heart. I'll follow you, my Lord. I'm ready to do my part. I'm ready to do your will. So here I am, my God. This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org. 